Uh, so we're talking about let's stop pretending and how, how we need to be real in our relationship with each other. And sometimes it's funny to, to see how people pretend. And, but today we're actually broaching a subject that really isn't funny at all and uh, talking about how we need to, to stop pretending and how we need to bring some things into the light, particularly when it comes to abuse. And uh, abuse is something that the Bible has a lot to say about. It's something that's very common in many of our lives, unfortunately. Statistics say that one in four women have been physically abused. One in five women have been sexually assaulted. Um, the statistic is one in six men have been sexually assaulted. Almost all as children and uh, young teenagers when it comes to men. This is a, a real problem. Dozens of you here today... Um, have been abused. And the truth is, in a group this size and with people watching online and in Hancock, I also know that there's a lot of people here today and you are the abuser. And nobody knows except maybe the one you're abusing and you think it's all, and, you, you're, and maybe you don't even see it yourself. But we're going to go through what God's Word says about this and, and hopefully um, the, the biggest thing we need to do, Jesus says, I, you know, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. One of the biggest things you need to do, if you are abusing, if you see yourself in some of what I'm talking about, you need to talk to someone, and, and you need to let it, let it get into the light of day and, and have other people get eyes on it and to have accountability and to change. And if you are being abused, it's the same thing. You need someone to talk to someone who you can trust who will help you out of this situation. Um, it's, it's super important. Um, here's what uh, Luke, what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4. Uh, it says, when he came to the village of Nazareth, this is his hometown, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood to read the scriptures. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where the, this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives or the slaves will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And he rolled up the scroll, kind of dropped the mic at that point, and said, this passage, this prophecy is fulfilled in me today. And you would think that they would be like, what? You've come to set the oppressed free? Yes! But moments later, they tried pushing him off a cliff. And, and this is God's heart for the oppressed. God's heart for the oppressed is clear. He wants them to be free, but unfortunately, many in this world do not want that. And they don't want Jesus upsetting tables and, and, and turning things upside down and, 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 and giving, giving power and, and help to those who are, who are struggling and are being abused. But this is what... God wants. He wants to set the oppressed free. Um, I'm not an expert about this. I met on Wednesday. There's a group in the area called uh, Sexual and Domestic Violence Advocacy Coalition, and they met at Interfaith. It's a mouthful. But it's a guy from probation, people from various local hospitals, Women's Resource Center, like different agencies and groups and, uh, of people in the area that deal with abuse in our area. And I said to them, it's a, a meeting every other month or every three months, something like that, and I've been to it before, but I've never really said anything before. 
But this, this last Wednesday, I spoke up and I said at the end, I said, you know what, I'm going to be preaching on abuse on Sunday. What sh- do, should I say? What do you think I should mention? And a bunch of people said a lot of really good things, but one in particular said, you need to give hope. And I think that's right on. And not only, I think that would be a small thing if only I gave you hope. Because who am I? 53-year-old white man, you know? Not even rich. (laughs) Like, what kind of hope can I give you? But I'm not here just to tell you that I say there's hope. I'm here to tell you that this is why Jesus came. And he came to give you hope. And he came to set you free. And your life can be different. And you can get out. And you can have a different, different life. And so the, the, Jesus came to set us free, yes, from spiritual oppression, absolutely, but also from physical oppression. And I just want to talk a little bit, and I'm not an expert, but about different types of abuse and signs of abuse. There is, of course, sexual abuse, and this can happen inside a marriage even. Like if you're a husband here today and you think that marrying your wife means you own her body, you've confused institutions. You're thinking of the institution of slavery, which is illegal and deplorable, and you will be judged by God. No, the the institution of marriage, when you marry, sex is about giving. It's never about taking. You don't take. You give. And, and so sexual violence, I think we know what that is. Physical violence, we kind of know what that is as well. But sometimes it's not only hurting someone physically, it can be threatening to hurt someone else, a pet or, or, or a child. Now, most of the time as I'm talking today, I'm going to talk about, use male pronouns for the abuser. Because the vast majority of abuse in our country is done by men. In fact, the vast majority of men who've been abused have been abused by other men. But, but women are capable of abuse too. And there's a, I know of a, a really sad story, a man who she would hurt him and she would do things and, and he was physically stronger than her, but she would say, don't you touch me and don't you tell anyone because you know I'm home alone with those kids all day while you're at work and you know what I'm capable of. And you leave me, you tell someone about me and I'll get the kids and you know what I'll do to them. And just manipulating, controlling through physical violence. You don't have to hurt someone very often when you don't really need to do it anymore. And it's just a look. It's just a motion. It's just a word. And you can control someone. This is what abuse is. Abuse is about control. I'm willing to hurt someone to get what I want. So two people arguing with each other and cussing at each other, that's not necessarily abuse. There's, there's this power differential in abuse where, where I am forcing my will upon someone else to get what I want. Treat someone like an object to control and use rather than a person to love and value. And so there's physical sin, there's, there's psychological abuse. This is harder to put. We, we know what the other things are. We can say, look, there's marks, there's scars, there's... But with this, it's harder. But it's worse Had a man recently talk about his abuse, and he's like, look, it's healed, but I can't get it out of my head. Psychological abuse. Here's some techniques that are often used, and again, if you see these things in a relationship you have, you need, you need to talk to someone. If you're dating and you see these things, you need to run, okay? 
like just get away, right? It's control through fear, intimidation, displaying weapons, threats to you or even to themselves. If, if, if your boyfriend or girlfriend says, if you leave me, I'll kill myself, you better leave, all right? Because they're trying to control and manipulate you and you need to, to try to get them help. But more than anything, you need to get away from that because that is a sign of a controlling, abusive person. All right, if you tell someone, I'll kill myself. All right, if you're married and that's going on, again, this is something that you, this is beyond just two people working it out. Like God has given us the body of Christ. God has given us other people, even authorities in our, in, in our community to help with things that we can't, you can't solve everything on your own. Right? Jesus is the answer to everyone's problem. You are not Jesus. You can't fix everybody. Okay, and if someone is threatening and trying to manipulate and control you by threatening suicide even for themselves, control through isolation from family, friends, school, and work. And so if someone's, you know, if, if your husband wants to see the receipts from the store and the gas station so he can clock the time and make sure that there aren't any gaps in time where you might have been somewhere else, that is a controlling, abusive attitude in person. Okay, and I bet there's other things going on. All right, if he says, you can't talk to your mother, leave and cleave. You need to leave your father and mother and be united and be one flesh. Okay, that's not about conversations. That's about authority. Okay, nobody wants their father-in-law or mother-in-law calling the shots in their marriage. No, you need to talk to each other and work things out together. And if your husband says, you can't talk to her because she's divorced, I don't want you getting any ideas. What? You're a control freak. Stop it. Here's, here's a verse, and I almost, I've only used this once before. Hebrews 13, verse 17. And uh, here's, here's what it says. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. <laughs> and some of you here, you're new, I'm not your spiritual leader, but many of you, you say, yeah, I, Pastor Bob's my pastor. This is my church. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they're accountable to God. So what if I walked up to you after the service and I said, I'd like to see your bank account and your checkbook and where all your money is and I'm going to tell you where to spend it. And, and I'm also going to tell you who and who you can't be friends with. What well, You would walk away saying, that place is a cult. <laughs> That's a cult leader and you would be right. Some of you husbands are treating your wife like a cult leader. This whole, you know, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Is that saying that husbands should make their wives submit? No. Who is this written to? Is this saying, spiritual leaders, you need to make your people do what you say? No. It's an invitation to follow. And you think about God and how he treats us. He, God's not up there and like, you know, you step out of line and boom. No, unfortunately, he lets us do whatever we want and wind up in all sorts of trouble and difficulty. He doesn't force us to follow him. And you husbands, your job is to love your wife, not make her submit. Quit doing a woman's job, you masculine men. Do the man's job, love. Not make, submit. There's nowhere in the Bible about that. Again, it's like taking and giving. The Bible is an invitation to give, not an invitation to take. 
And, and so we, we need the psychological abuse, uh, economic abuse. This is where, again, you know, taking all the money away. Well, she's bad with money. He's bad with money. Well, he has bad friends. And I'm not talking about I'm going to hang out with the buds I used to, you know, do drugs with. See you later. Okay, obviously that's a problem. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about control and thinking you know better and you can, and, and, and not letting the other person make decisions and make decisions with you and have input. Economic, where you, you, you give them maybe a little uh, allowance, right? And you control everything. Um, emotional. Uh, humiliating someone, maybe, you know, threatening or making them look terrible or trying to turn their kids against them or all sorts of common tactics. Minimize, deny, and blame. Minimize. Oh, it didn't hurt that bad. I barely touched you. It was nothing. You're such a baby, right? Minimizing abuse and then denying it. That never happened. I never said that. I never did that. Some, sometimes abusers are so good at denying that the person abused thinks they're going crazy. Like, did that not happen? Maybe it didn't happen. Oh, you were dreaming. Was that a dream? I, I Deny and then blame. That's a big one. Blaming someone else for what he or she did. You know, and saying, you know, uh, you know how hard it's been at work and how miserable my boss has been to me. You know, you know, it's so much pressure and, and that's why I did it. It was my boss's fault. Or you know what I'm like when things are tight financially and I, see, it's the money's fault. Or, or you know what it's like when I, when I, you know, uh, the kids get crazy and all that. It's the kid's fault. Or most of all, it's your fault. Well, I wouldn't have to shout if you would have done what I said the first time. And I never would have done that if you hadn't made me angry. That's a really big one. You make me angry. No one can make you angry. And here's what Jesus says about blaming others. The abuse is not your fault. He says, and then he added, Jesus says, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. From within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder. It, it is not something like you can't. This is actually freeing. To know that you can't make me do anything. It's not my parents' fault. My parents are not controlling me from the grave to, to make me do actions that are bad. It's, it's, it's me. I have control over me. And I don't have control over you. But I can control me. And he's saying it's, it's what comes from the inside that defiles you. And he lists all these things. Adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defiles you. So he's saying, you know, the abuse is not your fault. And don't blame others for what you do. It's not your boss's fault. It's not your spouse's fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's not the economy's fault. Whatever. It's, it's you are responsible for what you do. And then the opposite is really too, true also. Don't blame yourself for what others do. Well, you know, I, I kind of mouthed off to him. and All right, but that, that, that does not justify what he did back. Right? Don't blame yourself for what others do. Four biblical requirements. I want to try to move along quickly through this. Um, 
for those with power. In other words, this is how to not be an abuser. And we're going to pick a story that might be a little controversial, but I, I, I think it's there. And it's definitely there in, in certain aspects. And in other aspects, it might also be there. But how, how not to be an abuser. And it's a story of a national hero. This is why it's one of the most heartbreaking stories in all of the Bible, because this is a guy, this story is about, who is wonderful. He's this great man who winds up using his power to abuse, to abuse others. And it's a story about David, one of Israel's greatest heroes. There's Moses, there's Abraham, there's David. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab, the commander of his army, and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. And they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. As I read this story, and you can read it on your own and, and because I won't have time for the whole chapter, but there's a word that pops up more than any other, and it's, it's a little word that you'd miss. It's the word sent, and it means ordered. And what you see, I think this is a clue that this is not a story about sexual temptation as much as it is a story about power. And at this point, David is not the, the little teenager who killed Goliath the giant and was this national hero. He's not even running from Saul and hiding in caves. He's been king for 20 years. He was crowned king of Judah at age 30. At age 37, he reunited all of Israel and became king over the entire nation. And he is now 50 years old and has ruled the entire nation for 13 years. And he's gotten pretty comfortable wielding power and ordering people around. First thing we need to understand, if you've been given power and authority, we need to use that power to serve others, not to make them our servants. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and he could have said, you know what, guys, wash my feet. I'm the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you know what, they would have washed his feet. Maybe grumbling, but they would have done it. And when he came, he could have been like, you guys all need to feed me. I'm the Messiah. But he didn't. He fed them. He washed their feet. He could have said, I'm going to give you all swords, and I want you to die in battle for me. And they would have died for him. But he didn't. He died for us. And he showed us what real leadership is as men. How do we lead? We lead by serving. And if you've ever had a really good boss or in the military, a really good commander over you, a really good, if you've ever had someone lead really well above you, you know this is true because they show up for work earlier. They stay later. They take all the blame. They, they, they dish out all the, the, the credit to others. They are the servant. That's what great leadership looks like. And David here is not doing that. He's ordering people around Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, and whoever wrote this, I think he's just quietly dropping some clues. So David's men are out in battle, risking their lives, fighting for him, fighting for the country. And what's David doing? Taking naps. <laughs> he, he's not serving. He's being served. He's enjoying. He, maybe he's saying, you know what, I deserve it. After, you know... Over a decade, two decades of fighting Israel's battles, of risking my life, of sacrificing for others, now it's me time. 
After his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. She was taking a bath on her roof. And now some of you are like, all right, she's sketchy. What's a woman doing, you know, on her roof? <sighs> Sponging off, you know. Like, what? who does that? Like, this woman is like, she's asking for trouble. And that is totally not true. In this day and age, it was very common. In fact, most people had their bath on their roof for a couple reasons. One, Deuteronomy 22.8, they all had flat roofs. They didn't have like pointed roofs like ours. They're made out of stone, very dry culture, climate. And, and Deuteronomy 22.8 says you need to build walls around the outside of your roof because people would often go up there you know, get out of the heat of the house and be outside. And yet those walls would, would prevent people from falling off. That was why he wrote that. But it also gave you a degree of privacy. And if you had a bath, would you want your bath and the water inside where it could get damp and moldy and humidity? Or would you want your bath water on your roof where your extra room is there, where it can be warmed by the sun and you could actually take a warm bath? And the only problem is everybody's homes were about the same height except for the palace. And so, she, and in fact, we'll see later that she was actually, this was a ceremonial act of worship. Because it, I'll, I'll show you where it talks about that. But he sent someone to find out who she was, and she was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Whoever David's sending, whoever's messenger is here, is trying to stop. They know what David's thinking. And they're like, no, David. Who is it? They don't just say, oh, Bathsheba, a beautiful neighbor. No, they're like, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Eliam was Ahithophel's son. Ahithophel was David's closest and best advisor. David, this is your best advisor's granddaughter. Uh, and then the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Who's Uriah? Well, he's in the list of David's mighty men. It was a list of his 40, under 40, most capable warriors, special forces. And if you think about it, who lives next to the palace? But his, his best warrior and the granddaughter of his advisor. Of course, that's the kind of people who are going to be living next to the palace. And they're warning, this person's warning David, she's out of bounds, dude. But he doesn't care who she is. He just wants to use her. So David sent messengers to get her. Can you imagine? Your husband's gone at war. Two soldiers in uniform show up at your door. What does that mean? He's dead. What happened? You need to come to the palace right away. Oh, man. What's going on? Sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed her purification rites after her menstrual period. So what this is saying is that bath she was taking was a bath commanded by God. All of these rituals and things they needed to do, a lot of them were around cleanliness. It was seven days after her period, so she takes this bath. It also means that she is at the period where she is most likely to get pregnant. And so while she's obeying God in a ceremonial act of worship, David's doing the just the opposite and disobeying God and coveting and desiring her. And then he takes her. We must value others. David didn't value her. 
He just wanted her body. It didn't matter what her name was, who she was married to, who she was related to. And incidentally, the, the tendrils of abuse going out, Ahithophel, his advisor, uh, David's son Absalom rebels against him, creates a civil war, and Ahithophel sides against David, and I think it's because he treated my granddaughter like a prostitute, and I'm going to make sure he pays. And there's a civil war that erupts because of what David does. And those who are abusing, this is where if you sense, well, maybe Pastor Bob's talking about me a little bit as an abuser, you need, you need to talk to someone, you need to stop it because you are fighting against the Almighty God and He's keeping score. And He's coming for you. And maybe He's given you a great deal of time to repent. But we need... You, you need to change. You need repentance. You need to talk to someone. We must value others. We must empower others all through the story. David is, 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 is not empowering others. He's empowering himself. Look at this. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab, Joab sent him to David. And then David takes Uriah and he says, give me a report on the war. And then he says, all right. And then David sends him home. Why? Because he wants Uriah to go home. Uriah's been gone for a month. He's going to know this baby isn't his. But if I can get him home with his wife Bathsheba, then, then maybe he'll think it's his and I'll hide my sin. See, abuse loves secrecy. And if you want to be on God's side, you've got to be on the side of truth-telling and, 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 and bringing it to the light of day. And I talked to a man in our congregation not too long ago, several years, and he told me what he did, and I said, you've got to go right to the police and tell them exactly what you did. And he did. And he went to jail for years. Because that's the right thing to do. And uh, we got to empower others. And, and so what he does is, Uriah won't go home. So then he gets him drunk. It's another sign of abuse, forcing someone. And I don't know how much he forced him because he was a soldier. So, you know, that might have been easy. But if someone's forcing you to drink, to do drugs, to whatever, that, that, that's, that's another sign of abuse. But he forces him to get drunk or gets him drunk. And then he sends him home and he still won't go home. And then he says, he knows Uriah is trustworthy. He knows Uriah has integrity. So he sends him a message for Joab. He says, send this to Joab. And Uriah takes in his own hand the message of his own death warrant because David knows he's a good man and he won't look. And uh, Joab puts him in the front of the battle, tells everybody else around him he must have handpicked that crew because some of you have been in the military. You wouldn't obey those orders. Job was a shrewd man. He was ruthless, too. He knew who would obey those orders. And he put those men around Uriah. They fell back in the heat of the battle, and Uriah is killed. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, did she call for David? Oh, no. David's calling the shots here. He's still giving orders. He sent for her. And brought her to the palace. And what is she going to do? She's destitute. She has no children. She has no husband. Became one of his wives. Puts her in the harem. And then she gave birth to a son. And then the story turns. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So the Lord sent 
Nathan the prophet to tell David. Now God's starting to give orders and it's game over for David. And David pronounces his own penalty. Nathan tells him a story and, and David acting as judge just pronounces the, the verdict for that person in the story and Nathan says, you are the man and you will pay as you have said you would pay. You killed one man, Uriah. Your verdict on that story was that four, four times over and that's the way it's going to be. You're going to lose four of your own children because Uriah's mom and dad lost him. And, and you took a woman that was not your wife. There's going to be a man who takes your wives as well. And, and, and you deserve to die, but God had mercy on him and didn't kill him. And that's what his last thing. We must accept accountability. David's response to Nathan was, you're right. I've sinned. It's wrong. What can I do? And you can read Psalm 51. It's his prayer of, of repentance. I think if David, David very well could have, and, and it would have happened, if he, he could have said to Nathan, how dare you, guards kill him. And they would have killed him. It's the way things were. The ancient world was brutal. The modern world is brutal. But he didn't do that. He accepted accountability. That's what you need as well. If you're here and you've, been an abuser, you need to accept accountability. You need to get it into the light. You need, to, you need to allow other people into your life. Speaking is the solution. This is a, a Nobel Prize winner, Peace Prize. Elie Wiesel was a Holocaust survivor. He said, I swore never to be silent. Whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation, we must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. You know, there's situations where we see and we're like, I'm just going to mind my own business, right? I'm just going to be neutral. I don't want to get involved. What you're saying is, I want to help the oppressor. I want to put myself in standing against God and what he is desiring Never the victim does it help. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. I was at a counseling conference over a decade ago out in Indiana, and the, the, there's a group about this size, a couple hundred people there, and um, the man speaking up front was talking about why do bad things happen to good people? It's like the worst question to answer. You know, and I'm like, I'm so glad you're up there and I'm down here because. And then I really felt that way because I looked and in the front row was the ugliest man I've ever seen. His face was completely melted off. They did a poor job of reconstructing his nose. His one ear was pretty much just a hole in the head. And his other was obviously not his original ear. And he was right in the front row while this guy's talking, and afterward, I went up to this man, and I said, hey, I'm Bob, Who, you know, what's your name? Tell me about yourself. And he said, I was the mayor of my Alaskan village, and uh, I was a successful entrepreneur, and I had money, and I had a couple homes, and I had a plane, and, 
And then one day my plane crashed. I was alone. And uh, I was burned over 40% of my body. And I barely made it out alive. I was lucky that there were people around that could come to my aid. I had surgeries for years after that, first to save my life, then to try to reconstruct, you know, my, my face. And, and he said, and I lost everything. This was the 1980s. He says, my medical bills were astronomical. I, 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 everything was gone. Everything I'd worked so hard for. And I went from being this, this important man in town, the mayor, to being kind of like a leper. But he said, the thing is, through all that hardship, I found the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I found acceptance from Him, and I found His love. And what I do now is we go out into these little Alaskan villages. He was a Native American, and he says, we go to these Native American villages, and they're very isolated, and we do a VBS, and we do it for two weeks. He says, and I went to this one village of 300 people, and they're far from any, anyone else. You have to fly in to get there. And we did this VBS. They'd never, they'd never had a VBS. They'd never, they don't have a church. They don't know anything about Jesus. And we told these kids about Jesus. And he says, and while I was there, I realized that sexual abuse in that community was at 100%. Every single child. Not only that, but every single adult I talked to had been abused and it had gone on for generations. And he said, and I came and I said, this has got to stop. You can't call the police. We'll be there in two to three days. You have to deal with this. You know the pain it caused you. You can't let this continue. And I'm telling you, this man who looked like the ugliest man in the room was the most beautiful man. In all of that conference and in probably all of that city, it doesn't matter what's done to you. It doesn't matter if your face is melted off and you feel incredibly ugly. You know, after you've been raped, you're just as holy and precious to God as before because it's not what you do. I mean, it's not what others do to you that matters. It's what you do and it's who you are. And you can be different and your life can be different. Bad things grow in the dark where no one sees and no one knows. We need to bring it into the light and let the power of God and let the people of God and let the people God has put in authority to deal with things. We, we gotta, we gotta be. And you know what? For many of you, you've not been abused. Praise God. If someone comes to you and says, hey, does your husband ever scream and yell? Or you know, have you ever, you're a parent or so-and-so or relative, ever, ever done this or that? Don't, there's two things you don't say is, yeah, all the time, what's the big deal? No. The other thing you don't say is, what? That's awful, that's crazy, right? Don't, that, that, that might make that person retreat. What, what you do is you say, why do you ask that? Tell me more. Because many times when you see someone who's being abused, you got to walk with them through it because they might not be ready. You know, they hear one sermon and boom, 
There we go. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to take this huge risk. I'm going, to, I'm going to overcome my fears, and I'm going to reach out to someone. Many times it takes little steps of trusting and trusting and trusting until then they're ready to do what needs to be done. And you've got to be patient with them, and you've got to walk with them as they do that. Speak up about what's going on in your life and stand up for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just uh, thank you. You know what? Thank you, God. Amen. I want to say this before I start praying. (laughs) All right. We are going to have some people up front, and we're going to have some people in the back with these signs. I will pray for you. We do this every week, all right? So nobody's going to think, oh, that person was abused. Or, oh, I bet that person's an abuser. Okay, we do this every week. People come up for prayer, for anxiety, prayer for cancer of a family member, just different things going on in their lives um, or in the lives of others. And so I just want to encourage you to come forward. Talk about anything. Or go to the back. There'll be people with these signs as well. Talk about anything. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that... uh, You have not left us alone and you've not meant for us to be alone. And God, I just pray that that anyone who's listening online or over in Hancock or here in Montrose who feels alone, who feels isolated, that they would reach out to someone today, that you would give them wisdom to know who to talk to because sometimes you just reach out to the wrong person. God, just help them to reach out to the right person. Lord, help us who are following Jesus, help us to listen, help us to to rescue, help us to not be neutral, but to, to love and to stand up for the oppressed like you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, the difference between the standards of the world and the kingdom of God is that in the standards of the world, you may be defined as an abuser or as someone who has been abused, and that defines who you are. But in the kingdom of God, he has the power. He not only sends out for your protection and your redemption, but your identity. You don't have to live from that anymore. The difference between somebody who is an abuser